This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. At least that's our name for now. This weekend, we are offering seven conversations from episodes 29 and 30, our real-time coverage of Easel Congress 2023. Plus, on Tuesday, we will be reposting episode 28 with Mike Patel from the Fatty Liver Alliance and I, interviewing Dr. Tetiana Deshko, Director of Programs at the Alliance for Public Health in Ukraine. These episodes speak for themselves, so I'm going to keep the introduction short and sweet, leaving more time for the conversations themselves. This is the final conversation from the 6.15 a.m. recording session with Jorn Schottenberg, Ian Rowe, Mike Patel, and me. The conversation ranges from discussing the FGF21 agents Fruxifermin and Pagosifermin to the results of two major screening trials coming from respective nail MIT data. Finally, we discuss the broad rubric of AI, or artificial intelligence, and the many widely varying technologies folks are describing as AI today. My closing question was about other major impressions from the event. Answers centered on the interview I conducted with Tatiana Deshko from the Alliance for Public Health in UK, different reactions to the nail NIT presentation, and some reflections from Jorn about presentations half a world away at the American Diabetes Association meeting taking place the same weekend in San Diego, California. For a variety of reasons, the entire community looked forward to this meeting with an intensity and excitement I, at least, had not seen at previous events. These seven conversations suggest that the actual event met or exceeded these high expectations. So did the fact that the Tsunami podcast will spend the next month with five episodes reviewing highlights of meetings in detail. A lot happened. A lot's worth thinking about. A lot worth listening to. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn or Facebook discussion groups. Do we have anything else we want to say about drugs? Because I want to, I want to go on to other stuff. Jaren Schottenberg. The only thing I was going to say, we did uh, we did a secondary analysis of efruxifermin data showing the response of biomarkers in relation to histological improvement. And it was selected as a top poster. It was presented yesterday. I thought that to get the effect size in relation to histological improvement uh, from different drug trials will help us for the future. Because you now we are at a point where we hopefully will have a drug and then we got to know what does it mean if an NIT changes under therapy, to what extent? We continue the treatment and uh, do we stop the treatment. Is this efficacious for the patient or not? So I think those type of analysis moving forward will be very crucial for us uh, to make decisions. Agree. And Pagosafermin, which is the 89 bio FGF21, is one of the late breakers today. So it'll be intriguing to see how that comes out as well and whether they talk about any of that in that presentation. So in my advanced write-up about this conference. I described it as the coming out party for Nail on IT, but I think that's I think that's accurate. And there was a session a Thursday afternoon. Naim and then Mazen presented two papers out of the Nail on IT consortium. And, and Jorn had been saying a couple of months ago that you thought uh, Nail on IT was about to start to bear some significant fruit. And I think we saw a lot of that here. You know, and, and the idea that every time they put up a slide, they talk about the idea that, that goes, we're going to try to go straight past biopsy to outcomes, which is the strategy, is I think an important thing to socialize. Jorn, would you want to say anything about the data that Naim and, and Mazen were presenting since I know the Europe significant part of all that? Yes, yeah, so the Nail IT Consortium uh, combined screening data from six interventional phase two trials to correlate. Again, it's kind of the same story as I just detailed, uh, liver histology with, with biomarkers. Name showed performance in the AGA pathway and a little bit expected if, if you have an enriched clinical trial population, and that was also shown for the madrigal population earlier. The non-invasive referral tests we're using are not, not the greatest to identify um, patients, and actually quite some are in the 
low FIP4 category and still have significant disease. But this is not the way we we are using FIP4 and, and Ian's done a lot of work on that. It's something that is, I think, overplaying its ability in those enriched populations. And then the, the data Mazen showed, again, related to changes or to vibration-controlled transient elastography. Again, we haven't seen data from that many patients and nail NIT is going to grow. So I think we'll, we'll exceed 10,000 patients with liver biopsies. So for that, it's a unique cohort that we're going to study NITs in. Ian Rowe. The, the point that, that Jorn makes about the enriched population means that the messages that you take from the consortium in terms of the screening aspects you know, really are inapplicable to the way that many people are using those tests in primary care. There's very much questions about enrolling patients in, in trials and understanding that difference in context of use, I think, is really important for people because there's a risk otherwise that you look at the nail NIT data and think, oh, we've got our thresholds all wrong. And I don't think we have. And, you know, there were data presented from secondary care cohorts in a couple of poster sessions where the out- liver outcomes in people who've got low FIP4 are extremely rare. And if we're going to get away from tying non-invasive tests to histology and instead tie them to outcomes, then that's what we have to remember. And I think it's important that people understand that the populations are very different and the implications of the studies then are also different. Agreed. And there's work you've done and also work, I guess, that John Lynch has done in UK also, that take a look at screening strategies for a broader population that might be a more efficient way to get to the right target patients. But that's not by throwing out FIB forward, simply by trying to enhance a little bit, take advantage of what it does well, and then enhance. And I think that's the strategy we should all be looking at in the long run, I believe. Mike Battelle. I was just going to add that any alternative to biopsies in the real world is something that everybody uh, wants to move towards, I think clinicians and patients. And so uh, any of the work that they keep sharing on successes and uh, who to do which NIT with helps. Yeah, and I think even, by the way, in the U.S., I think payers don't necessarily have a strong appetite to demand biopsy. And that was a fear three years ago, but I don't think that's how it's going to emerge. I could be wrong, but I, I don't anticipate that uh, we're going to see thousands of people have to get biopsies or millions of people literally to get biopsies in order to get on drug. And, and that, that would be a good thing, I think. The one other thing I want to make sure we touched on this morning is the whole issue of artificial intelligence, which is a rubric that is applied far too widely to far too many different kinds of things. But I think we're starting to see some um, contours emerge for where the debate might be. I, I had said in the in the preview that I was really intrigued to see the Path AIM paper that Stephen was going to be presenting as part of that session on Thursday afternoon, because Stephen has touted that as being the most likely way to get beyond biopsy and clinical trial for FDA. That might be right, but I, I think I had hoped for a little more. I mean, uh, Vlad Ratsu made the comment on question that I think I, actually, I agreed with, which is that if all we are doing here is using the same slides and the same metrics, but doing a better job of reducing variance in ordinal measures, that that probably underplays what we can achieve with the technology. Ian and I were standing outside yesterday afternoon together when Tim Kendall uh, from uh, Edinburgh put up a a different paper, which took a look at second harmonic uh, generation convergence stuff from uh, Histoindex, Truth and Packaging, their client on the podcast. But I thought it was a different thing. But there, I'm not sure people, I don't know you felt, you know, I felt people didn't exactly understand exactly what they were looking at. And a 15-minute presentation is a lot to capture. But it is. I think we've had this conversation on the podcast before, but my personal view is that the inter and intra-reader variability is less important than the sampling variability. And we showed that, I think, at least quite compellingly in a paper that we published last year about interpretation of placebo responses in, in clinical trials. And if I think the technologies will really help if they can reduce that sampling variability by providing a, a sort of a more holistic read on fibrosis, 
if you can you know interpret what you've got in the in your single slide better more clearly then then i think that that will that that will help i mean the decision support that the path ai tool gives is only as good as the as the annotations that it was provided with and the quality of the data that you saw you know supported that because you had really good outcomes um, for steatosis and fibrosis and, and less good for for ballooning and inflammation where i guess the where it's where it's harder i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you and mike if either one of you ever thought about that because i could i could you know we're now we're now in statistics so we're kind of in my zone i could talk about this forever i'm going to try not to i think it'll also help us to understand the disease progression and potentially regression better because it's not about the way we categorize this in, in a five-tier nash crn system um, i think the ai will support us on deciphering how fibrosis in the middle of the lobule zone two does look like and how that could contribute to the disease stage versus the portal tract uh, fibrosis, for example. So I think the ability to more precisely localize fibers and um, look at the completeness of bridging or scarring is going to help us to do to see some early signs of efficacy. Agree. And so one of the concerns I've got about all this is that I've heard AI as a concept used to describe four different phenomena in the space we're dealing in right now. Right, the, the path AI approach, which is can we simply reduce variance around the measures we're using now to get drugs approved? The uh, the second harmonic, which is I think what, what Ian and then Yorn have described, the ability to get a much clearer view of the, of the liver and to, to, to get cleaner stories about what's going on. And then I'll run around to the other side. I mean, um, Alina Allen was telling me that she's got her model up and that that's a model of how to use EHR in, in, in a machine learning context to do a better job of identifying patients who need to get treated who aren't getting treated. And if you go across the pond, Predictive Health, who's been on this podcast, are doing the same thing, but they explicitly say this is not AI. We're just looking at some very simple measures and we're making it work. So I, I think there's a, certainly in the US, we have a tendency to try to make everything as technological as possible because we think somehow that makes it automatically better. And our healthcare system in this country is full of spending way too much money to solve problems where if we did things like talk people to eat better, we might not have. You know, whereas the rest of the world, I mean, there are, there are great talks about things like alcohol labeling and food package labeling. And in the US, we're having fights about um, corporations have the right to free speech. So if I want to call my product with 16 grams of sugar, Healthy, healthy cereal. I can do that. And you can't stop me, FDA. So that's a very American approach. But I'd like to think that what we can find is efficient solutions that educate us on things that really matter. And there, I think this entire AI ML field has tremendous potential. If it's used right, I'm just concerned that we will get confused about the terms and what we're trying to do and either overrepresent or overrepresent what's possible. Hey, Roger, I, I was going to talk a little bit about, like, like Stephen Harrison has always said, you know, for years about that pathology intervariability of results and the fact that AI could, you know, now eliminate that. But there was also discussions at this at the conference about not letting AI make the decisions for the physician. And if we ever get to the point that physicians don't have that input themselves, that we're, it's going to be an issue. You were there for that one or two times. Look, you, we have two physicians in this conference and you and I are neither of them. I'm not particularly concerned about it evolving that way, but I really want to know what you and Ian think. So there are certain, I, I am sure there are circumstances where algorithms will make better decisions than doctors. Um, and, the, and the fibrosis testing arena is probably one of those you know in terms of consistency and probably accuracy algorithms in that setting will i think probably outperform physicians because we'll begin to look at information that's probably less relevant i'm not concerned i have to say about you know the necessarily complete digital computer read versus a pathologist read assuming that the model's well trained and is accurate then then i think that that would be fine i think we cannot have machines start talking to you know convey diagnoses or like 
like give something automated to the patient. We need the uh, personal interaction. But if we get help interpreting a lot of data that we can uh, grasp ourselves in, in the available time, uh, I think that's the way forward. Completely agree with both those comments. And, and, and the cautionary note, by the way, uh, which is another definition of AI is generative AI and the increasing understanding that it can reinforce stereotypes and drive its own algorithms really bad directions if not managed by people as we go along. Roger, so it's funny. I just thought of something like like that from what Ian said. This is not AI related, but it is Fib4 related that there are physicians, a lot of people are saying, why does a primary care physician have to take time out of all the patients are seeing to calculate the Fib4 when it should be on the blood, when you're doing the sending in the blood work to get it back that way. So that's just one example of a technological um, advantage. You don't have to sit and do that manually. Yeah, but that's not AI, right? I said that, but I'm giving an even more primitive example that's saying we're already dealing with that. People are already moving towards not having to do things manually themselves. Completely agree. Uh, I guess it's probably time for us to wrap this conversation up because at least Jorn and Ian need to get over to the hall before for, for things at 8 o'clock. I, I have a little more leeway, but that's okay. So in closing, was there a moment in the last three days that you had a reaction you really didn't expect, either viscerally or intellectually, to something you saw? For me, it's easy. You did an interview with Tatiana from yep. Ukraine, and, and it just hit me hard. And when she said that they had to train people to avoid landmines and to wear bulletproof vests when they want to go in to see patients, that was like, oh, my God, that's dedication. Yeah, that. let me suggest that everyone who's listening to this should go back and find that interview. I was astonished. <laughs> he's already uh, he's still speechless. <laughs> uh, yeah, which is really unusual for me. So you know how that came about. Um, the press people for Easel also work with the major HIV initiatives in Europe. And before the war, she was the coordinator for HIV programs in Ukraine. And, you know, the funny thing about that is I think that moment affected everybody in the meeting. It reminded us all what our sense of purpose is. And the fact that we can have solidarity on if we can do that, we can do other things like patient care and, and NASH and NAFL, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. Other moments, Ian, Jorn? The thing that struck me most, actually, was the nail and IT presentations. I had a, a bit of a response to those because the population is so different. And some of the approaches that we used, I felt were perhaps not that applicable, you know, Fagan's nomogram, which perhaps very few people who are listening will be familiar with, but but actually where the pretest probability of diagnosis is already high, it's probably not the best place to be using that sort of approach. And we've learned a lot about how, you know, how trials are interpreted, but I think there's still a gap about interpretation of biomarkers and populations context of use and, and I think there's probably a need for the community to be able to understand that a bit more clearly and to be able to share that knowledge more widely. So first of all Ian on the one hand I agree but the thing about and this nail MIT is important is keeping it in context and the proper context for nail MIT is that all the other developed work on how to go beyond biopsy in clinical trials has started with you how to prove yourself against the biopsy and I've used this example on this podcast a bunch of times but they were never able to get a generic for Premarin despite the fact it was 60 years old drug selling $2 billion a year in the U.S. And the reason is because the bioavailability was so erratic that you couldn't get a generic because the generics could not be made to be as erratic as Premarin was. So if you think of nail NIT in the context of trying to come up with a way not to have to use biopsy in the trial process, then I think you appreciate the, the tremendous leap forward that can be made by skipping the step that goes compare it to biopsy. That said, as, as I said about AI, I'm very afraid that people are going to misinterpret phrases and use them in really bad ways. That's another point of the same thing. If you start to use the enriched nail 
MIT populations to decide how you want to screen frontline in primary care offices, that's going to be not a good thing. Yeah, and I, and I totally agree with the potential for nail MIT in the longer term to, to be able to do that, to move beyond the biopsy. And I think, I think we all agree. I think the whole community, apart from the regulators, agrees that that is the right direction of travel. And I've got absolutely no issues with that because I think it's, it's a really rational approach. They're high quality data sets and they're enriched for advanced disease where there will be events over time. So definitely the right place to look. It's just it's about how we understand the data that they present now just to inform those other strategies. Yeah, I, I believe there's going to be general challenges as we go forward about making sure that everybody reads, the, learns the right lessons and doesn't over, neither over nor under interprets things that are going to come forward. I, I couldn't agree with you more about that. Any other closing thoughts? You're in your uncharacteristically quiet. Not that you're not quiet, but you're even quiet for you. It's early. Um, no, <laughs> we have another half a day and we're going to see a late breaker today and the ASLD deadlines is passed. So we're, we're going to meet again in November and see where this brings us. Actually, the, the one thing that I kind of regret is actually ADA is happening at the same time. And I just saw another press release of a compound serovatite being um, efficacious in, in obesity. It's a drug that's a dual agonist. And um, it, I think the momentum in the field is, is strong and we, we're going to see some concepts, uh, those will be beneficial for liver health. And um, I'm just very excited uh, to be here at this time uh, point and develop those, those medications and NITs uh, for our patients. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Next week begins our five-episode review of Key Easel Congress Finding. Also, keep an eye and ear out on LinkedIn and Facebook for invitations to share your thoughts on our upcoming brand change, given that, as people keep writing, I quote, Nash is dead. Long live Nash and Nassau, end of quote. So until then, stay safe. Surf on. If you're in the States, enjoy the July 4th weekend, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye.